So, we are back, Mary. Yeah, we're back. Back to school, gym, university, offices, some of us, not quite yet for us. And back here bringing you season two for your daily commute or downtime in the house. Brilliant. Did you have a good break? Picked up any little economic anecdotes or interesting things to note before we get going? So I didn't really manage a holiday, but I am joining the London Exodus and moving out of London to the suburbs. So I feel like rather than holiday reading, I've become an expert on the housing market, mortgage rates, various other aspects of personal finance. And I'm newly becoming an expert on the legal documents associated with moving house, which feels like it's taking forever. But there we go. That is super interesting because you're not the first person I've heard who is making that sort of a move. And obviously you read a little bit about it in the newspapers. So you're sort of an economic data point of yourself, really. I guess so. Yeah. And banking on not having to move again too soon so that I don't mind too much if I don't buy at the, exactly the right price. But there we go. So it's almost distracted me from not having a holiday. But you got away, didn't you, Dan? You got to France. We did. Yes, we got a holiday to France. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, we drove down, spent a couple of weeks down there. The big thing that struck me about France is it was so much more opened up than here. So really people out in the streets, things very full, lots of mask wearing, obviously, and masks are pretty much obligatory, even outdoors, almost everywhere. And people do follow it pretty well. There's this real sense of it being a lot more open, I would say. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. It's just, it's just what it was. My new economic indicator is going to be the fact that my brother-in-law opened a bar in France in July. Excellent timing. <laughs> well, excellent timing, you might say. But actually, he's actually done really, really well. Oh, brilliant. It's in Royan, beachy town, quite touristy down there. So they have a lot of holiday makers. They've done really well. And I think it's partly because there was so much pent up demand for people to go out and drink and socialize. And also the clubs in France are still closed, the nightclubs. So the bars have actually really profited from that. So we went there a few times and it was really, really busy and buzzing, surprisingly, much more so than the bars here, I would say. So I'll keep you updated with how the visits there are going. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess, given you've actually had a holiday, Dan, have you enjoyed any holiday reading? Do you have any recommendations for listeners? A few things. Yeah. I mean, people might know I I do read a lot. I just only wish I could remember 10% of it. But I I can still remember what I read over the summer, luckily. I read a couple of cycling books. They were really good. But the one I would pick out was a book called The Biggest Bluff by a journalist who she decided to become a professional poker player and writes really well about that journey. She didn't do really well. She did very well at the World Series and some really big events. She talks a lot about psychology. She talks about being a woman in poker, which is a very small percentage of professional poker players are women, and some really interesting insights that map across to investing and also to life, really. That's her basic point, that poker has this combination of shared information, hidden information, randomness that actually is quite similar in many ways to life. And she sort of starts off by saying a lot of people think that poker is gambling. It's just wrong, really, because there is, is just so much skill in how you play the cards and stuff. So that was interesting. Interesting. So if you nail poker, does that mean that automatically you nail life? <laughs> I think that's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll give it a read. Fine. So quickly then, before we get going, what can listeners expect from season two? And what were some of the things we learned from season one then? So shorter episodes, we've set ourselves a target of 30 minutes max. Hopefully that makes it fit more easily into your day. It also means we'll be quite firm with our guests. We'll have to tell them if they're taking too long to answer our questions and we might have to cut them off if they won't stop. Yes. And secondly, big themes. 
We're going to go beyond the normal investment markets and economics chit chat. We're going to be talking about big issues like race in investing, like financial wellness, our relationships with money. We're going to be talking about gender diversity, epidemiology. Well, I think we're all amateur epidemiologists these days, aren't we? But we're going to talk with a real epidemiologist. We're going to be talking about psychology and more, as well as, of course, the usual sort of info and chat on markets, risk investment managers and those sort of things. We're also going to try and bring you more episodes with asset owners and experts um, from outside LCP as well. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, we're going to focus on one key takeaway from each episode. So hopefully that helps to focus the mind and give you something clear to come away with every time you've listened. Broadly, though, we'd really love to hear what you think. So drop us a line to give us feedback. If you like the podcast, of course, do give it a review on iTunes and recommend it to someone else. So Let's get started with episode one. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So we kicked off our first series with an episode on forecasting, and it felt only right that the first episode of our second series would also focus on forecasting. So today on Investment Uncut, I'm pleased to welcome back Natalie Brain, senior consultant in our investment team and key member of our economic research team. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Natalie, it's the third time, actually, you've been on the show. But back when we first spoke to you, which was way back in February this year, feels like a lifetime ago, you were telling us one of your hobbies was doing a bit of pottery. So just wondering whether you've been able to get back involved in that yet or not. Unfortunately not. I think it wasn't the best time to pick up a new hobby that you need to be out using some equipment somewhere else. (laughs) I'm on pause at the moment. Natalie, when we spoke back in February, you were talking a little bit about your 2020 forecast. And then I bet that one part of that forecast wasn't that you were going to end up becoming an amateur epidemiologist like most economists and worrying about vaccines and transmission rates and all that sort of stuff, right? That wasn't on your radar? (laughs) It wasn't on my radar, no. But you're right. I didn't imagine this year I'd spend so long talking about all of this, but same for everyone, I think. So I guess maybe a good place to start with this episode is to reflect back on that first ever episode on forecasting. And Natalie, you did a really good job of defending the role of forecasting in that episode. But I mean, maybe thinking about some of the specific topics that we covered, should we just reflect maybe back on the last six or so months and how things have changed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think back then I'd have introduced our kind of framework for setting out our outlook for the global economy, how we see things, which is our set of scenarios. So upside central case downside scenarios. Is that like the good, bad and the ugly or the good, bad and the medium? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, something like that. So I think at that time, yeah, I'd have talked to you through what our latest outlook was for each of those and also spoken about how they just evolve over time, depending on, on what's going on there. We're continually reviewing them, changing what feeds into each of them, what are kind of we see as most likely or probabilities we assign to each of them. Um, So as you'd expect this year, there's been an absolute overhaul of what went into our scenarios. And so we did that well very early on in the year. We did that and then continually reviewing and moderating them as we go. One of the big differences, I suppose, to when I spoke to you first back in February would just be some of those probabilities that we assign to each of the scenarios with just our bands of likelihood 
broadening for each of them, just reflecting the continued uncertainty, as well as obviously the content and what we've got in them. So since the second time that I spoke to you, something that's quite key that's evolved in that time is I suppose in our central case scenario, looking at our outlook for the global recession and for the shape of the recovery. So we're continuing to think about that and see how everything's unraveling with kind of exiting from lockdowns and and everything that's gone on. So we've probably, I think again, we'd have spoken a lot about different shapes of the recession at that point. The one we're leaning more to at the moment for our central case is a, a square root type recovery the square root recovery <laughs> square root yes moved away from the letters I, I must have missed that in the economic <laughs> textbooks that, that I had that yeah yeah absolutely so I think we had yeah we had a v as our upside that's still there when I switched you before it would have been more of a u shape in our central case and that's the one that's changed to a square root and w as our downside scenario Obviously, it's a bit jargony, but it is a bit of a laugh but the square root you basically mean it's not recovering fully is that and then goes flat before it recovers Exactly. So I think we're seeing there'll be a, an initial kind of mechanical rebound, as we've seen already start to happen as economies have been reopening, trying to operate more normally wherever they can. We do see an initial rebound, but then we do expect growth levels to flatten off, growth to be slow, take a long time to recover to pre-crisis levels. And something we are more more sure of now is just that there will be a permanent loss of activity and and output from the crisis. So that permanent scarring, which will be there even when growth does recover to pre-crisis levels. Is that just down to people's changes in behaviour, less gathering, less crowds, much less transport, travelling around, that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. So shifts like that. I think also a lot of uncertainty still continuing about employment market. So we do expect unemployment to remain high and to to continue that way. I think it's particularly key to be watching this at the moment as the furlough schemes are being unraveled or being gradually removed or other support packages. It's October, isn't it? That starts, so that finishes actually in October, doesn't it? The furlough. That's right at the moment. The key question will be if that is extended. I think other parts of Europe are moving towards that or it's looking much more likely so whether the UK will do the same is a pretty key question but as people are less certain about employment it changes hugely spending saving proportions and just with less of that flowing into the economy and quite a big difference there. So Natalie you've previously described how you kind of form your view and one of the sort of inputs to that is speaking to other economists at asset management firms and other similar roles. When you're speaking to them in this sort of market environment, do you find that the answers you get coming through are different from each other, more different from each other than in normal times? Or or is there not much of a trend there? Yes, I think that that is right. I think in this kind of environment, we do see opinions differ more perhaps than we did before. So if we're looking back into 2019, we'd perhaps get more consistent messaging there. So there probably is a bit more difference, but it's probably also just with the being such huge things which can change outlook and change how things go so individual views about those so whether that's vaccine development kind of timing of that being completely crucial at the moment or whether it's about second waves and how severe those will be or how likely they are and there's probably a few more areas where they can have different opinions which are maybe bigger or more important to central outlook now than perhaps back but when we were looking at things last year um, and things might have been a bit more similar yeah 
It's a really interesting point, isn't it? And in some ways, it's quite a philosophical point because it's become fairly sort of common to say that there's huge uncertainty where we are right now. And of course, that seems obviously to be true, doesn't it? Things do feel incredibly uncertain. But of course, if you wind back to when we spoke in February, this whole thing was ahead of us, totally invisible to us at the time, but we still sat there as a risk that was sort of coming in. So while we all felt that things were much more certain back then, you can make a case to say these things were always out there. We just kid ourselves that there is this kind of false certainty a lot of the time and talk ourselves into these more certain kind of worldviews when actually we ought to remember this sort of situation when the uncertainties do sort of come home to roost. Yeah. I mean, certainly, Natalie, you've said already that we've widened the boundaries around our different sort of case scenarios. And it feels like we get permission to do that at the moment because everyone appreciates how uncertain things are. But thinking back to sort of more normal times, I think probably we'd be, people would be saying we were sitting on the fence if we gave really wide boundaries and we said, well, we don't really know what's going to happen. I feel like we don't usually get permission to say that, but I currently feel more comfortable sitting in a meeting saying, your guess is as good as mine and no one knows what's going to happen. But I guess in terms of what's the lesson from that, as you said, Dan, the risks are always there. That uncertainty was always there. And perhaps it just points to resilience, more resilience in investment strategies, more resilience in approach to different scenarios, because we can't possibly know it all. And there's lots that could be around the corner. Yes, as you say, that the right answer probably is usually to sit there and say, look, we don't really know with that much certainty and there are some very wide bounds around stuff. But that doesn't seem like a great answer a lot of the time when times seem nice and normal then you kind of want a bit more certainty, don't you? So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Tricky one for you, people like you, Natalie, trying to come up with these <laughs> forecasts, I guess. We're always trying to push you to narrow down those certainties, but you're right to remind us that there's a lot of different things that could happen. Yeah. Absolutely. And a kind of a key project we've been working on recently is is looking over our kind of economic scenarios that can play out with clients. So looking at potential impacts of these scenarios, so upside, central case and downside on scheme funding levels, which is runs through our model LCP Visualize. And then also some more kind of out there scenarios in terms of inflation. So looking at a very deflationary environment or looking at stagflation where you've got low growth, but a, a higher inflation environment, which just to try and give clients that feel and an understanding for what could happen, they're quite, especially the inflation scenarios are quite out there, things that could happen, but it is trying to, yeah, to show that, as you say, these things that can crop up that we wouldn't necessarily expect um, and trying to to demonstrate that to clients and show them possible outcomes. And I think scenarios can be really helpful, actually, because, you know, any given one is probably going to be wrong by quite a long way, but it just makes it more tangible for clients, doesn't it? To say, well, here's a whole bunch of things that could come together and just walking through those different scenarios. But it's interesting you mentioned the stagflation because that is sort of the old classic one we all learned, but if anything, it's sort of been turned on its head, hasn't it? Because the kind of low growth and high inflation, it just seems a long way away from where we are. And the last thing that we seem to have had is inflation. So are you sort of suggesting that you think that is a tail risk at the moment or something you see a pathway to that that happening? They are quite alternative scenarios. Our two um, inflation-focused scenarios are a bit more out there and a bit different, but I suppose we're, as I said, we're trying to demonstrate or illustrate things that could potentially happen. And stagflation in particular, I mean, it's where we could see it come through from all this policy support, which initially yields a gradual recovery, but then just the yeah amount of policy support leads to that overshoot in inflation. While it hasn't also been enough to really stimulate or, or generate growth and has to be kind of tightened abruptly to balance with that rise in inflation that the economy isn't really up and running enough by that point. So it's not something that we're seeing as very likely at the moment. 
as you said, Dan, I mean, inflation has just been hugely subdued in developed markets over recent times. Our central outlook is that inflation will remain subdued if we're looking over the next one, kind of one to two years, particularly linked to just unemployment being higher. They're just economies not operating at full capacity. And so we're not seeing it as a real risk in the short term. I suppose as we move further out, that could potentially become more of a risk. And I guess back to our earlier conversation, having scenarios that don't immediately feel like the next thing that will happen are still really helpful scenarios to consider. And like you said, having the scenario there and looking at the numbers is a way of making that much more tangible. Yeah, exactly. Illustrating some of the wildcard scenarios which could actually happen, I guess, like we've seen with this year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. We we focus a lot on things that have changed since we first spoke in February. But I mean, it's probably worth chatting a little bit about some of the things that, that haven't changed. I listened back to that episode just now and it stands up okay. And there are a few themes that do really carry through amazingly. So for example, you talked a lot about monetary policy. Back then, you were looking back at 2019 and commenting on how monetary policy from the Fed had been very supportive of equity markets. And of course, we couldn't have thought of it at the time, but that's been a huge, huge theme this year as well and has continued to drive markets, really. So I guess a lesson there that that is dominant paradigm for now, it would seem, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the level of policy support has just been huge nothing that's ever been seen before. So both in terms of monetary policy and also fiscal policy as well. And I think we saw how quickly supportive policy was brought in was yeah pretty remarkable and just the quantity as well. That's something that we don't expect to change in the near term at all. In particular, the US Federal Reserve announced a new inflation policy that was recent, so at the end of August. So that's just moving from the current inflation target that they've got at a a fixed 2% level to become more flexible, so allowing the ability to overshoot that. That really signals that interest rates will remain lower for even longer. We've been saying lower for longer, then in this year it's been lower for even longer, and now this is just pushing that even further. Just with that becoming much more flexible, we do expect that supportive policy to remain for a long time. And that is such a key and central point to to markets and how they're operating at the moment. A lot of people have made the point that some people have suggested we've been sort of moving into this new monetary policy paradigm where it's no longer about are the Fed going to raise or lower rates by 25 basis points this week, but it's just a much more a conversation around the sort of the other extraordinary measures, the support, the QE, and those kind of things. And that the role of the Fed and monetary policy is just a bit of a tipping point. Would you sort of agree with that assessment? Or in your mind, is it going to sort of go back to where we were at some point in the not too distant future? I mean, I think it's been kind of heading towards this direction for quite a while. I mean, I think even back where we were talking about normalisation of monetary policy and things, it just seemed incredibly difficult to actually get there. And that was a couple of years ago and before the pandemic and before the situation that we're in now. So I think there has been a, yeah, a, a big change through this. I think it's only cemented further the previous position that it's just pretty central at the moment to how markets are operating. I think it is something that's going to be very difficult to withdraw, to take away. We've seen that with the Bank of Japan as well, just continual huge amounts of QE being pumped into the economy. And it's just seeming extremely difficult to to withdraw that level of support. I guess thinking back to that first episode, a couple of other things that we would have spoken about. We've got, I guess, US elections and Brexit. Brexit feels like maybe we're we're in almost exactly the same position we were in February. 
Yeah, Brexit is interesting. I think it got overtaken in the headlines, of course, for everything else that's been going on and is just resurfacing a bit now as I think the timeline's looking very tight. So I suppose one of the key developments was the transition period extension. It wasn't extended, but that was the key kind of point that was at the end of June that that we did expect that the transition period would be extended. We thought that would be sensible given the current environment. But it wasn't. So now we're looking at four months in which to agree trade terms with the EU. But if we're actually looking in terms of practicalities, we would need those trade terms to be agreed by the EU summit coming up in the middle of October. That's not looking very far. It would need to be agreed by that point in order to be kind of ratified all the measures that would be brought in to bring it into force. It's very tight. I think our our central case is, is still that some form of trade deal will be agreed, but that it would be very light in nature. So perhaps focusing on a couple of sectors like industrials or manufacturing, but with lots of other sectors, negotiations around them stretching on for many years, continuing just to weigh on UK outlook, consumer confidence, business investment, as has been the case over the last few years. But saying that, there is, of course, still a risk that a deal isn't agreed. There's yeah, nothing agreed by that new summit in October or by the end of the year, and that we do leave on, on World Trade Organization rules. We've already seen the UK announce that border controls on goods coming into the UK from the EU have been kind of won't apply um, until July next year. There's no promise of the EU reciprocating that agreement, so there still is risk of border situations and trade and just yeah potential for that to have significant impact on on UK economy overall. Do you think the market's focusing on that yet and data sort of starting to bear out some of those issues weighing on things or not? It is quite hard to tell. UK outlook generally has been very weak. It has been yeah very weak through this pandemic and in the recovery as well. You've probably heard the kind of minus 20% GDP in Q2, which is just absolutely astounding. And it's partly due to the nature of the UK economy, so much more service, all reliant on the service sector than than other areas, um, and being a bit slower to go through that mechanical rebound that I, I spoke about and, and kind of activity levels being more subdued than in other countries. I do also believe there is a Brexit risk or Brexit uncertainty layer feeding into this as well. There's just been huge amounts of uncertainty about Brexit over the last couple of years. That does feed into consumer sentiment. It feeds into business spending. And I do think that is another key reason as to why UK economy really has been so weak. And of course, we've got the furlough scheme, of course, running off in October as well. So sort of end of October and November is shaping up to be quite a pivotal couple of months potentially for the UK economy more generally. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, any announcements, as we touched on about the furlough scheme and what's done with that or, or other measures of support will be be pretty key over the next couple of months. Yeah, and of course, something else that we spoke a little bit about before is the US election that's still there, it's still looming, it's got a lot closer now. So what's your take on how markets are sort of, I guess, weighing that in terms of the different outcomes and, and what how they're reacting to different things? Yeah, absolutely. So it's getting much closer now through the pandemic. It's it has fed into latest polls and, and what we're seeing in terms of Biden taking the lead over Trump and Trump being criticised for how he's dealt with the pandemic. So as Biden is taking the lead in polls, as I said, if he did win, that would be expected to have a, a negative impact on markets just in terms of tax 
policy, higher tax for individuals, for companies. And that's the opposite to what Trump did when he first came in in 2016. And potential tax for some of the US tech giants as well, which have been kind of leading the way in markets this year. So that is one big factor. I think a, a really interesting, quite key point in this as well is Biden's push towards the green revolution, which has really come through and a huge divide in how the two of them are campaigning and it's being central to to his campaign, which could on a global level have a huge, I think it would have a, a huge impact and drive real change in the area if he did win with the US's approach to kind of climate policy and, and that green revolution changing hugely. And with the US and the EU is already there. So if the US was to join that side, I think there could be a a real push in terms of how the world operates and could bring China as another major trading block more in line with that, that that's a real potential significant change that could come through. So Natalie, a lot of this episode so far has been focused on uncertainty and risk and worries in the market and the, in the economy. Is there any good news coming out of, I guess, either the data or any conversations you've had with economists? Yeah, there's so much negative news that's come out this year in terms of yeah numbers of cases, deaths, second waves, everything been going on. I touched on it with the US election. And I think the Green revolution is something which is important to note and is a a more positive kind of change in tack. I think we're seeing government spending plans coming through as building back better and building back greener. I think we're seeing a real push towards change in terms of climate policy and action being taken. So I think that is something which has emerged and has come through stronger this year and through the pandemic. So I think that is one positive change. As I said, if Biden did win, that would be cemented even more and I think would be, yeah, would be very significant. So Natalie, what would you say is the one main thing you'd like listeners to take away from this conversation? I think we touched on it when we spoke about policy, so both monetary policy and fiscal policy. And I think that's just been absolutely central to how things are operating. And that's both in yeah monetary policy and also fiscal policy and the role that government is playing. Governments have really stepped in to provide huge amounts of support. I think there's potential for them to play a bigger role in future um, and that that support has just been absolutely central to what we've seen in terms of the recovery and how the yeah future of the economy is looking ahead. Absolutely. As we wrap up, I wondered whether you had any recommendations for the listeners, kind of books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that. I did watch a really interesting BBC show called Devs. I don't know if you've heard of it. Devs? Yeah. I haven't come across it. Yeah, very interesting. It's by Alec Garland, was the producer who wrote The Beach. It's about a kind of, if free will exists and the kind of deterministic philosophy in future kind of AI, big data world. Sounds very geeky, but it is very good. It sounds pretty pretty deep and profound, doesn't it? It's not your average kind of like Friday evening couch watching stuff. No. <laughs> yeah, it, it's good. It's very different. Yeah, very interesting. Great. We'll check it out. Natalie, it's been a great conversation today as ever. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks both. It's been great to be back. Thanks, Natalie. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Thanks. Bye.
Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.